Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. I'm your host, Soyini Koch. Our nation's schools are lagging global performance metrics. And today's guests from Boosterthon Fundrun are taking this problem on. This company provides an innovative fitness fundraiser for K-5 schools. And their CEO, Chris, Chris Carneal, and COO, Stephen Murray, are going to talk to us about this issue, education, fundraising, and how they've done a great job in developing their comp- company culture. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks, Sweeney, for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. To get us started, Chris, tell us what does Boosterthon Fun Run do? And what problems do you address at the K-5 through schools that you serve? Well, thank you. Uh, good morning to everybody. Uh, we are headquartered in Metro Atlanta, Alpharetta, and we work with about 2,000 elementary schools nationwide, 38 states, representing 1.5 million students. And every school, rich or poor, large or small, wants more funds. And what they do with those funds— Every business wants everybody, more funds. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> everybody loves money. That's right. Well, it's what you can do with the funds that really makes a difference. And in elementary schools, it's amazing what they do with the funds when they have just a little bit more. They can keep a teacher on staff longer. They can hire someone else. They can build a new uh, playground. They can build a new gym floor, a science lab. So what it, we, we don't— care where the money goes, but it's our job to try to maximize and optimize the amount raised. So we put on fitness fun runs. We also teach character leadership. We organize the entire program. My mom was a teacher for 35 years. So we have a very client and educator centric approach, which is let us do the work so the educators can educate. We'll organize, we'll promote, uh, we'll collect, we'll do it all. And we really want the students to feel like they're part of it and they have a sense of ownership over the program. So everyone participates fully, 100% inclusive program. Mm -hmm. Stephen, when we were preparing for the show, one of the things you mentioned is that globally, the U.S. is not performing as well as it has historically relative to other nations in terms of education. And I think probably most of the CEOs listening to this show are aware of that. And they're also aware that talent and talent pool is a critical issue Mm -hmm. for them. And so this is going to come to their doorstep if they're in business in the next decade or so, because talent is so critical. How does what Boosterthon Fun Run does help that it help with the issue around talent and and the fundraising actually driving better performance at schools? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it is a big deal. I mean, there's a lot of studies out there, but over the past thirty to forty years, I believe we've dropped from being the best in the world in education to about thirty fifth, thirty sixth of the most developed countries. And what's amazing is we still spend the most per student. Of, uh, of all countries out there when it comes to education. So we're spending the most, but yet we're 36th or 37th um, in education effectiveness. And this is the ultimate leading indicator of the next generation, right? I mean, we love uh, celebrating when America is the best at something, but when you look at, uh, okay, here's our next generation of leaders, and maybe we're not preparing them quite as well as we could, what does that mean for the next 20 or 30 years, as you're saying, for talent? And so one of the things that we've looked at, and um, a lot of smarter people than us have looked at, is where the money is going. If we're spending that much money, who has control of that money uh, when it comes to education? And a lot of the trends in different countries, and even here in the U.S., is giving more autonomy 
to the local educators over their budget. And so what we're able to do is we're able to come on campus and now in the grand scheme of things, we may only be a drop in the bucket as far as what their budget is, but we're able to give them more money that they can actually control and those dollars can go further. So we feel like we're able to move the needle in that way. Mm. And do you have a sense of how the funding actually ties to educational performance? I think that that's a question that I've had because I've heard that statistic before, that it's not that the U.S. isn't spending the money, but somehow it's just not making a difference. I mean, I I know that, you know, this may be a little bit um, academic, but I think for CEOs listening who may have heard about this problem before may have that question as well. Like, why is the money being spent, but it seems to not be working? That is the trillion-dollar education (laughs) question, and I wish I knew the answer, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people at the Department of Education wish they knew that answer. I think that's the, that is the problem we're trying to solve because throwing more money at it is not necessarily moving the needle, at least by the statistics we've seen. But we have seen that money at a local level does certainly help uh, some short-term needs. And that's mm-hmm. what our mission is to try to strengthen schools by raising just a little bit more money for their discretionary. As you have um, looked at the impact of the fundraising that you've done, do you know where they're spending the money? Just out of curiosity, what are they yes. doing with it? You name it, they're doing it. And again, it's local <clears throat> autonomy. We've raised actually the past 15 years about $160 million. That's not total raise. That's that's the school's profit of the amount raised, which is remarkable. Generous donors, incredible schools. Uh, you know, the first few years, a lot was going 15 years ago when we started the organization. Playgrounds and kind of capital improvements. Really about eight years ago, the shift went overwhelmingly to technology, mm-hmm. whether it was smart boards or iPads or media center improvements. And then Post-recession, even the last few years, a lot's gone back in some ways to, uh, we have an incredible music teacher. She can only teach twice a week. Can we get her full-time? Or PE, can we bring that back in the classroom and make it a, a, you know, a daily thing? So technology is the big trend, of course, no surprise, but uh, jobs and uh, capital improvements is another one. Obviously, you survived the, the Great Recession. How... Mm-hmm. Does the recession and how do does the economic cycle affect you and your business? Well, I'll, I'll start that and turn it over to Stephen. We were side by side during what, if anybody listening had a business that was trying to grow at that time, it was very scary. We were optimistic. Uh, I remember sending out a video to our entire team saying, we're going to survive this. And that was the ultimate goal, not thrive, just survive. When you're raising money for schools and your income's dependent upon fundraising and people can't pay their mortgage, it's a very difficult for your business model. But Exactly. I, that's I why said, I asked. I was like, <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. We came extremely close to going out of business multiple, multiple times. Mm. Uh, very close. And I'm sure many people listening feel that. And I still feel it daily and it fuels my drive. And it, you know, there's always recessions coming at some point. We prayed not another one for a while. But um, I said, let me frame the opportunity ahead of us. Let's redo our business model to be recession-proof. Then if good times come again, great, but let's do all we can to figure out what is the true value of our clients, the true needs of our organization. Let's streamline. If we can build a business that can grow in a recession, then it can grow anytime. And I think we've, uh, through lots of trial and error, been an incredible team, managed to do that. Yeah. And I I get back to what you were saying. I mean, when when people ultimately give out of their excess and there's no excess uh, because of a recession, it just makes it hard. But I think what we learned to do, not, you know, yes, rebuild the business model, so we can cut costs and, and be better stewards, but ultimately looking at, okay, how can we, what we were just talking about as far as education being so important to our country, how can we be, be better about our message to the donors that, hey, let's connect to their hearts, let, you know, help you understand how you're giving money to local school ultimately can help in the long run, even though you're pinched in the short term. So mm-hmm. we got a lot better at our, our message and, and showing them what their money's actually going to. That's big. If you're going to 
cut a check for a donation. You want to know where that money's going and how it's working. And so we were able to be a little bit more transparent and showing here's how this works. So there's always a silver lining and I'm overly optimistic at times, but I remember thinking, well, if it's tough for us, it's probably also tough for schools. If, uh, people are going back to work and maybe there's dual income families, then there's less people on a school campus that can think about raising money. They might need to turn to outside experts. So in a sense, we grew market share, even though it was a difficult time to run the business. So there was a greater need for our services. You said something that really made my ears perk up, which is recession-proof. Do you think that you've made your business recession-proof? It depends on the size of the recession, (laughs) the scope of the recession, the type of recession. I don't think any business is 100% recession-proof. But we said, what can we control and what can we not control? What is within our domain and power to see? Let's build models that account for drops in revenue to X percent, you know, the break glass when necessary. But then it also really allowed us to be client-centric in our approach. What are we doing that we think our clients like, but we're not sure. And we weren't really data-driven at that time. We weren't even asking those questions. We were assuming clients wanted certain things. So there were things we were able to strip away from the program that were costs that didn't matter, but then it allowed us to bring back things when revenue it did pick up and the economy did pick up a little bit that were more valuable to our clients. So always asking the question, we think you build something that clients want, three years go by, it's just they don't really want that anymore. So it's created a good cycle and rhythm for us to to stay client centric. So take us, take me, because I'm a strategist, as as you know, as I mentioned um, before we started. Take me through this process of developing, you know, the recession resistant, let's say, not recession proof. Better word. Yes, <laughs> recession recession resistant business. And how did you go through that process? And like, what what did you actually do? to take your business from, you know, vulnerable when you went into the recession and much less so when you came out of the recession? Absolutely. I mean, it grew us up in a lot of ways. And and when we looked at our business model, number one, we realized at the time we didn't have a CFO. So our first step was, hey, if we're going to be talking about fixed costs versus, you know, variable costs and how do we make it a little bit more elastic as we move through up and downs on a, uh, on an economic front, we said, we need a CFO. So we hired a CFO and uh, believe it or not, we put budgets in place as revolutionary as that sounds. We had to, we had to grow up and, you know, and, and look at, look in the mirror and say, okay, we can't just be focused on the short term. We have to understand the long-term effects of our business model. So we looked at that and, and on the variable cost front, I believe we probably took about 20% of our expenses that were fixed and we were saying, let's look outside the box and and figure out a way that we can make these more variable, um, uh, you know, as far as how we purchase, to how we staff, to how we schedule schools, um, because we are a service-based business that we're kind of limited by the calendar. I mean, we're only open when schools are open. And as you know, that's not the summer, that's not the weekends. And so we just had to get really intentional and, and sharpen our pencils on all of our expenses but I will say, and this helps having a, a CEO like Chris that's so future-focused, I think it's easy in a recession to only focus on defense, right? Um, and we really realize, you know what? We're fast-growing right now. We're gaining more of the market. We can't throttle that back. I mean, we need cash, and growing's expensive. Um, but at the same time, we need to still play great offense and not just be on the defense the whole time. So you could speak more to that, Chris. Yeah, we, well, one of the uh, benefits of being privately held is we didn't have any profits for those few years, more than few. <laughs> but I didn't care because I had a future mindset and thought, let's gain market share, let's serve our clients. If we're the people that can help them in their hour of need, they'll be hopefully, and they have been, loyal to us you know, for years to come. So we said, let's just view the next five years as we don't need to be profitable. Let's hit the gas on growth. Let's cr- convert to more variable expenses for sure, but let's play offense more than defense. It's tough to win some games. The instinct is let's go to defense, but sometimes it's just only so much you can cut. 
without cutting true value to the school. So in some ways we said, let's just overvalue and let them know that we're here for you and we're going to make it through this. And if we're not profitable for five years and we weren't, uh, that's okay. Let's mm-hmm. hit the gas. Mm-hmm. How'd you manage the cash? cash well, whew, our CFO is the one that managed the cash. We have 180 days where revenue is possible. So if we're a restaurant, some restaurants are closed on Sundays or other days or breakfast. We're closed until lunch on Wednesday. Wow. 180 school days. <laughs> so if you look at our P&L in October looks like, this is great. Well, we were making the mistake of showing banks for lines of credit, our P&L in July, when we hadn't had any revenue in two months. And so to to even out cash flow in some ways uh, was challenging our CFO and his team did a remarkable job of that. So great. A great bank partner in a season that understood our seasonality. Mm -hmm. We went to six banks. Uh, The first five said no. We found a bank that was very innovative. Uh, and understood small business growth. That was a key. Will my business model match the bank's model? Uh, and they did. They understood it, and we're, we will stick with them forever. Hmm. Now, so I, I'm interested in how you told that story, right? Did you, to the bank that actually said yes? I was uh, intentional to let our CFO tell the story, uh, former banker to banker, uh, using words like accrual and cash flow forecast. And while I'm talking about uh, education and fundraising and uh, character lessons for students. So we just built models. We, the story was on paper. Here's where we've been. It's not as much as looking at the snapshot of the month. Look at our history over time. Look at some changes we've made. Look at how we're improving. They saw our trend lines mm-hmm. and they started small and we just stayed in front of them and we would update them monthly. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I noticed is that it sounds like you were not myopic, right? So one of the things that I know happens to CEOs or happens to people, right, when we get threatened is our view gets real narrow, Mm -hmm. gets real small. What did you do as a team to make sure that your view stayed broad and and, um, futuristic? Specifically during that that Mm -hmm. period of the recession? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, or even now, I mean, I think it's also true now. People can focus on, well, things are great. Yay. Wow. It's going to be great forever. Yeah. And it won't. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think specifically for, for Chris and his optimism and, and knowing how committed he was. I mean, if we looked back at how he started the organization and, and working out the back of his pickup truck, there was just this understood belief that, you know, he never gave up then. Why is he going to give up now? So I think it starts with that positivity of, you know, it, we're, we're going over a little bit of a bump in the road, but this isn't a disaster uh, per se. And so that positivity, I think, allowed us to stay focused on the future. Um, and that had a trickle-down effect. I mean, at the time in the recession, I mean, we had, we probably were about to cross over the 100 employee threshold. And so we were a part of a lot of conversations on, hey, how do we continue to re-recruit our team, even though we don't get to see them on a regular basis? What does that mean? And so we, we put in extra hours, uh, a, lot, a lot of sky miles, in that season, getting out to our team across different states to encourage them and say, hey, we're going to get through this. And so a lot of that was, let's keep the team on the field so that we can then keep our focus on the future. Mm-hmm. Because if you're losing your team in that season or uh, you know, you're just dealing with drama and people are demoralized, then of course you're never going to be able to focus on the future. So secure the team, keep them on the field, and then we were able to set our sights on the future. It was the right decision, not because we were great strategists at the time. It's the only thing we knew to do. Uh, the only thing worse than losing clients in a tough season would be losing your team. So at the time, I remember literally, I was reading a lot of Revolutionary War stories and getting interested in it. And I remember, what, well, how in the world did these crazy Americans defeat the 
world's largest, most experienced army? And the answer was Washington's strategy is called a Fabian strategy was I will keep the troops on the field. As long as we don't lose and the troops know that something hopeful is possible, a vision of a preferred future in a sense, as long as there's that spirit of 76, they called it, alive in the troops, then we can get through it. So it was my job as the CEO at the time, and then Stephen and our CFO's job to get the business model going. My job was, let me just keep a glimmer of hope in our team. So vision casting, videos, in-person meetings, late night celebrations, dinner with the team. We were not cutting costs uh, in terms of team culture. If anything, we were spending more to make sure the team saw the vision, saw that this was the season, recession even. It might be the first recession we've been in. It might be the great recession, but they typically happen once a decade or so. And uh, it won't be the last. And let's march on to the future. Great. So th- for those of you listening, we're talking to the CEO and COO of Boosterthon Fun Run, um, an innovative company that provides um, fundraisers around fitness for K-5 through schools. want to turn the conversation to this thing about culture, because as you said before we uh, started the show, it's your secret sauce. And, you know, as you said, it was the thing that got you through the recession. So for CEOs listening, we talk about culture and team building on every single show. What would you say is your single best recommendation um, coming out of all these experiences for how CEOs listening can build a great culture? I'll get it started. And Stephen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Culture is not something you do. It's who you are. It has to be at your DNA level. In fact, the word culture is starts with, like our word, cultivate. To take a piece of land where nothing exists, to plant seeds, to water it, to spend a lot of time where nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, with the right ingredients, the right time frame, and in the next season ahead, here comes something that will bear fruit in a sense. So I always viewed our people as I'm going to invest, 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 invest. There's not going to necessarily be an immediate return. But if I see the best in them, I feel that everyone could win a gold medal at some Olympic sport. It's my job to discover what that is. What are they a superstar at? What's their superpower? Is it flying? Is it being invisible? Is it, what's their sport? And if it's my job to figure that out, discover it, and then align it in such a way that serves our clients. And if I can do that, our clients will win. They'll experience success they've never felt before. Then I'm just going to spend the rest of my time celebrating, reaffirming, and uh, providing them resources to do more of what they're great at. And Stephen, what are some specific things that you do? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I think this is basic, but uh, I believe 80% of culture is who you hire at the end of the day. So spending that extra time hiring the right people, and this comes back to when you're busy, it's short-term and you just need a body, it seems, really taking the time to hire the right people because they're going to add to the culture at the end of the day or they're going to subtract from it. And you got to make sure you're, you're adding in the right people. Um, and then secondarily, we always say, you know, what, what's celebrated, and Chris alluded to how we celebrate our team, what's celebrated is reproduced or repeated in the culture, but also what's tolerated is repeated. And so that's a big thing for us is to look at it and say, okay, well, what are we going to celebrate when somebody goes above and beyond? Absolutely, let's do that. But it's also easy to kind of look when there's underperformers or there's certain things going on where you're like, you know what? We got to dive into that because if we're going to tolerate that, that's going to start trickling into just about everything that we do. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of keeping that balance of celebrating, but at the same time, drawing a hard line on what's expected mm-hmm. um, through the process. So. And, and how do you identify what, what you celebrate and what you tolerate? What you don't tolerate, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it depends. There's obviously kind of the core value conversation of what are the core values that transcends every job in our business. So looking at core values and being crystal clear on what it is and what it's not. 
but also by role. I mean, we're really clear on, hey, this is the core function of this job description, and here's what it looks like. We, we call it winning work, when your work is winning for the organization. So here's what it looks like when you're, you're winning, um, but at the same time, here's where it looks like when you're falling short. And of course, we're going to uh, lead with coaching and be gracious in that season, but there comes a certain point that if somebody isn't performing at that winning work pace, that you got to look at it and say, is this the right fit? You know, because if you're tolerating that, again, it's going to affect the rest of the organization and other people are going to start picking that up. So how do you keep the celebration or the celebratory culture without getting too warm and fuzzy, wuzzy, wuzzy? <laughs> well, Stephen and I are a great balance <laughs> in this. Uh, it's talking about hard work and winning work. You just have to be aware of where you are. You have to know it's a category. I think organizations could be a little bit more fuzzy-wuzzy <laughs> than they typically are. As long as we've hired the right people and they have clear expectations, uh, we, they know what's tolerated, what's not, we love celebrating our team. And it's our job to make sure we're celebrating the right things. And if we're celebrating the right things, everyone wants to be celebrated. And if I pull someone up on stage or reward them or do a video of them, I'm very intentional of what I'm celebrating, not just the person or not just some, here's what they did, here's how they did it, and most importantly, here's why they did it and how it affected our clients. Mm -hmm. So if I'm telling that story over and over, people want to be celebrated and they want to be the person that has another story like that to tell. And yeah. so what do these celebrations look like? Is it money? Is it just, you know, an email? Is it a pat? I mean, what does it actually look like? Everything. Primarily affirmation. We're very good at huddling people. We try to, we try to, multiply celebrations where it's not just a once a year come on stage. We do that. We do quarterly. We do semester. We do monthly huddles. We do monthly home office meetings. We do a monthly video. Uh, I write notes. I send emails. But the most prevalent time celebrations happen, especially in our field teams all over the country, is daily. There's a daily huddle. Uh, sometimes it's multiple times a day where the team leader will say, hey, gather up real quick. I know we just did three fun runs. We got three more to go. I just want to affirm Susie, for going above and beyond, for shaking parents' hands, for seeing what other people didn't see, for going and refilling the water faster without being asked and taking initiative. Let's keep it up. So just that quick 30-second pointing out what's right. We're so quick to point out what's wrong. And if you can point out what's right and people hear it and reproduce it over and over, they're that much more uh, able to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and on those huddles specifically, and this is where Chris and I are a balance, uh, we actually, all of our team members have either an iPad or an iPhone, and we have an app on there that's called the Champion Challenge app. And so in those daily huddles, it is the first part is that champion of let's call out what's right, and you log in and it actually sends them. This is how we do instant feedback, and we gather almost a, a database of feedback. There's the, the champion, let's affirm, let's encourage, but there's also, hey, here's the challenge, here's what you can do better the next time. And so it is that balance of leading, uh, as Chris was saying, with affirmation, encouragement, because it's a long day. You've worked really hard. The last thing you want to be told is you could have done something better right away. So it's leading with, here's what you did right. And then it's, hey, here's how you can continue to grow and get better. And so that learning piece and that development piece is a huge part of our culture. Do you also use that to, to generate um, summary level data? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about how that works, because I imagine that's a very rich pool of data that you're using to then really institutionalize and systematize how you you you, you know, kind of inculcate the culture or indoctrinate the culture into your into your organization. Yeah. So our supervisors, when they, um, you know, we require because if you think about our fiscal year is the school year, mm -hmm. so it's broken up into two semesters: fall and spring. Those are kind of like our quarters or our halves, right? Fall and spring. 
And our supervisors uh, are, we, you know, the requirement, what's expected is they do a performance evaluation for their entire team twice a year at the end of each semester. Um, and before they do that, we tell them you have to prepare and they get to go back through and sum up all of that feedback on every team member. That's It's 360 degrees too. It's from their supervisor, it's from peers, it's from subordinates. They compile that and put it into the evaluation. So we're using that frequently across, you know, 500 employees nationwide. Great. And then from an executive level uh, standpoint, because from what I understand, as Chris said, you know, you don't uh, enforce a culture, you are a culture. And you model what people will uh, follow what, what's modeled much faster than what they're told to do. So how do you as, a, as an executive team uh, begin to model that culture for the rest of your organization? Well, I'll, I'll brag on Chris for a second. Um, and we, I was just highlighting this at our GM meeting this week. All of our, our 22 GMs nationwide have, have been in town this week for training. And um, Chris is just, you know, you do this every couple of years, reevaluating his role as CEO. And so over the past two months, he's been meeting with CEOs that are in, you know, big Fortune 500 companies just through his network. And in the span of two months, he's sat down with 12 CEOs. And these are like elite level next level CEOs, right, that he's managed to sit down with to learn from and sit with a humble posture and just ask for advice. And so I think that's huge for our culture with, um, you know, a lot of us, I've never done my role before. Many people in their role has never, you know, done that exact role before. So this idea of a culture of learning um, and humility is so big. And Chris models that. I always say, I can't outlearn Chris Carneal. And to know that I have a boss and a founder of the company that is learning at a pace that I have a hard time keeping up with, that's the best thing he can do for me as a leader, uh, is to try to stay ahead of me with what he's learning, because that, that trickles down. I try to do the same thing for my team. So, mm. Chris, so what's your ph- philosophy on modeling these values? Well, you have to think of modeling as, I can only model what's authentic and true to me. I can't fake it. Or you'll either run out of steam or it's viewed, especially our 600 millennials, (laughs) they could sniff through, is this legit or not? Is this who they are or not? Are they saying it because they mean it or not? Is there a sense of conviction, enthusiasm behind it or not? Um, As the founder, not just CEO, I've been very blessed to be able to build the organization around me in my gift sets, lack of gifts and personality and who I am. So the fact that what we do hosting events for students that's fun and exciting that I love it. I love every second. I think they can see it's not a, it's not a job. There's, there's times in the day that are tough and seasons that are tough, but I, I love it. And I think my enthusiasm for what we do and who we do it with, I'm not faking it. They know I'm not faking it. So I think they genuinely love it. So they'll hire teamers that they want to work with, not just high competency, but also high chemistry and high character. Is this someone I'm going to spend the majority of my waking hours with? I'm going to spend more time with my coworkers than my family, if you play that out over your life. Uh, so I want to give my team the gift of culture and that you will work with people that, will, that you will want to become like, that will see the best in you, see your unique abilities and push you to do more and try harder. Hmm. Great. And so as we, we think about kind of blowing that out over time, over the years, do you have like a set of things that you actually do? Or is it just completely intuitive and organic and this is just who Chris is? Regarding culture, mm-hmm. it, just in big picture, um, I'm always thinking about it. I mean, literally every morning, 5.15 workout, it's over at 6, go eat a Waffle House at 6. One of the first things I think about at 6.05 is my bacon comes out and I'm thinking about the day. How is my team? 
first I start with how am I and how's my family and how are my friends, but then how is my team? Do I like the culture we have and what's the culture we should be moving? And there's always room for improvement. We always need to mature. Our clients are moving and maturing. We're changing and maturing and we need to not just keep up with, we need to get ahead of. So if the, if the CEO needs to know that culture is, in fact, Stephen just referenced when I met with these 12 CEOs, nine of the 12, one of my questions was, I'm moving, I'm thinking more future and getting further out because Stephen is doing such a great job running the day-to-day. I have the luxury to not have to think about the next year or really even three years. I get to do what I'm really best at, which is think more future. Where's the world going? What are products and services we can offer our clients? So as I asked these CEOs, great ones, I mean, you'd know the name, everyone listening would know the half their names at least, most of them in Atlanta, incredible, incredible uh, results and who they are as people. What are the three biggest parts of your job? What do you think about every day to see if, am I thinking about the right stuff? Or am I thinking about stuff that's not a priority? Mm-hmm. Uh, nine of the 12 listed culture as their number one priority. Now, given these were people that I admire and want to be like, so I specifically chose them, but they're all remarkable. And they say the the larger you get, the more, not less, your organization should think about culture. And I wholeheartedly agree. Great. Thank you so much for a great show, gentlemen. Uh, as we close, tell us about some of the things that are new and exciting at Boosterthon that you think our CEO listeners would be interested in knowing. We have lots of great things. I'll kick us off. My mom was a reading professor, so we just launched a readathon concept for our schools that love running, but say we also maybe want every few years to do a readathon program. It's called the Book Fit Bowl, and it's this bowl game where they're, it feels like a game show in many ways, and it's really exciting. Uh, so we've launched that. We have a we are the largest purchaser of youth t-shirts in the country because our <laughs> students that run get t-shirts. So we have launched a t-shirt company as well which is now uh, serving, uh, I think we printed 2 million t-shirts next year. So we can print incredible t-shirts for any organization listening. What we're also looking for too is if there's any organizations that say, I feel like the future of America and the core of communities probably in some way is influenced by the local elementary school. I want to help that local elementary school, even if I don't have kids going there. So Call us, email me. I would love to figure out a way. Our mission is to strengthen schools. And we know we can't do it alone. We're looking for partners to help strengthen schools, whatever that looks like. Mentoring, connecting them with the principal, helping raise funds. If it serves and strengthens the school, we want to bring in more people to help in that endeavor. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Listeners, we've been talking to Boosterthon Fun Run, their CEO, Chris Carneal, and COO, Stephen Murray. Thank you so much for a great show. On Thursday... You can check out our blog where we're going to highlight the key takeaways from today's show. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a profitable, productive, and very prosperous week. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.